Jeremiah chapter two, verses one through eight. The topic we find there, God remembers the love of his betrothal to the people of Judah and he encourages them to do the same. The title of our message, An Affiance to Remember. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our morning. As we're gonna see in just a moment, Lord, we too are betrothed to you and so the things that you spoke through Jeremiah to Judah, they're really super meaningful to us and uh, Lord, I pray that we would be a people who leave here remembering that great love, that not just your love for us, but the love of our betrothal and Lord, that that love would motivate and keep us uh, as we await your return from heaven. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. If ever there was a misleading name for a television show, it would have to be the 1950s classic, The Honeymooners. The marriage depicted was anything but a honeymoon. Bus driver Ralph Cramden had a short fuse and a loud mouth. His wife Alice had a sharp tongue and could give as good as she got. It seemed like every episode, Ralph threatened to uppercut Alice so hard he'd send her as he said... To the moon. Yeah, I'm sad that we know that. (laughs) In another recurring line of dialogue, he would say to his wife, one of these days, one of these days, pow, right in the kisser. I guess that was honeymooning in the 1950s. Today, we tend to call that sort of thing spousal abuse. In his first message to the nation of Judah, Jeremiah portrays God as fondly remembering the honeymoon with his beloved people while they are severely abusing his love for them. I can't help but be reminded too of the words of Jesus in the letter he wrote in the Revelation to his beloved bride, the church at Ephesus, in which he said that they had left their first love for him. If it was possible for Judah and for the saints at Ephesus to leave their first love, then it is possible for us, it's possible for you, it's possible for me. To encourage us to remember, and if necessary, to return, I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, God is prone to remember the love of your betrothal. Number two, you are prone to leave the love of your betrothal. Let's take a look at God's heart first in verses one, two, and three. Now we're just getting into the book of, the, uh, of Jeremiah and so uh, each week I'll try and give you a little bit of a perspective on uh, how it's outlined and such. The Wilkinson and Boa Bible Handbook, for example, says this as it introduces us to the book of Jeremiah. It says, Jeremiah is the autobiography of one of Judah's greatest prophets during the nation's darkest days. Apostasy, idolatry, perverted worship, moral decay, these were the conditions under which Jeremiah lived and ministered. An avalanche of judgment is coming, and Jeremiah is called to proclaim that message faithfully for 40 years. In response to his sermons, the tender prophet of God experiences intense sorrows at the hands of his countrymen. Opposition, beatings, isolation, and imprisonment. But though rejected and persecuted, Jeremiah lives to see many of his prophecies come true. The Babylonian army arrives, vengeance falls, and God's holiness and justice are vindicated, although it breaks Jeremiah's heart. Now, as we begin chapter two, we have Jeremiah's first recorded sermon. 
A total of 12 such sermons, or some say 13, depending on where you uh, break, they are recorded for us from here through chapter 25. And so this first section of the book, we were introduced to Jeremiah in chapter one, his call, his ministry, now a series of 12 or 13 sermons that he preached during the course of his ministry. This inaugural sermon ends in chapter three at verse five. And so we're gonna take our time looking at it in parts. And the first part describes a betrothal that has become a betrayal. Verse one says, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me. Now, how exactly the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, we don't know, we're not told. It may have been audibly, or it may have been by a distinct impression, or it may have been by some combination of means. We have the word of God in its completed written form. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us to teach us the word. But then too, God still speaks to us by his still small voice. Prophecies, dreams, waking visions, similes and such are still available for God if he so chooses to communicate with us. We just always need to be sure to test everything that we might hear or receive that is not in the written word by his written word. And as long as we do that, we're gonna be fine. Uh, Some people say, oh no, you know, we don't want to have anything to do with any prophecy or dream or anything like that. That's all dead. There's nothing wrong with that as long as you're willing to test it and say, because God's not going to tell you anything outside of his word that contradicts his word. And so we can be thankful that we have the completed word of God. Now, verse two, go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem saying, thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness in a land not sown. This is the opening note of a series of messages warning Judah of judgment and captivity. They were evil, wicked, perverse idolaters. As we'll see, they had brought idols into the temple of God. They had their children gathering wood for sacrifices they would make on altars to the Canaanite gods. They worshiped the queen of heaven. How did God choose to begin warning these backsliders? He began by wooing them. God revealed his romantic recollections of their first love for him. And it's their first love for him that he's talking about here in these opening verses. When God says the kindness of your youth, he's not reminding them how kind he is. He's remembering their kindness. Uh, One odd but informative definition for the word here translated kindness, it's a difficult word and the English translators chose the word kindness, It's, it's accurate, but a better translation is an odd word, we would translate it good deedliness. Ever use that word in a sentence? That's your assignment for this afternoon. I really, I'm gonna say it four or five times this morning because I really got into it this way. So I thought, that's a great word, good deedliness. It describes a zealous response to God. They were initially zealous to perform good deeds simply because they were pleasing to the one who loved them. In other words, it wasn't that, you know, they didn't come to God initially and say, okay, you're God, we're not, what do you want us to do? Can I do it on a rotation? Uh, Do I have to do it all the time? You know, that kind of thing. It wasn't, they didn't see it that way at all. God said, when you first knew me, you couldn't wait to do good things that were pleasing to me just for the sake of pleasing me because you were so in love with me. 
That was the kindness of their youth. And then God described this time as the love of your betrothal. God thought of the early days fondly as if they had joyously, voluntarily, mutually decided to be engaged to him, as if he had asked them to uh, you know, fall in love with him and they had said yes. It says here, they went after God in the wilderness in a land not sown. Now, in those ancient times, people didn't routinely leave their homes and their dwellings to go out into the wilderness with no prospect of supply, with no idea where they were going. You know, we have GPS and maps and, you know, we, most of the time, you know, we, when we travel here in California, you kind of know where you've gone before and where the in and outs are and, you know, all that kind of thing. Get all the way across, you know, California just by going to in and outs and, you know, it's fantastic. But in those days, it's, you know, if somebody said, hey, come and follow me into what, the Judean wilderness? And yet God says, you did. When I said, follow me, you got up, you left Egypt and you came out into the wilderness. It's reminiscent of the crazy things people do when they're in love. Some of you did some crazy stuff when you were in, uh, initially in love with your uh, you know, uh, fiance. You, you, you drive you know, and get there in the middle of the night and stay up all night three days at a time and, you know, miss your job, be late for work. And I'm not recommending any of that, but I mean, it was just, you know, you just, it was crazy. Things you wouldn't ordinarily do, things that seemed like, oh, yeah. But you would do it because you were in love. God said, that was what it was like, you guys. It was just fantastic. You had your good deedliness and, and, and your betrothal and, and then you followed me out into the wilderness. Now, at this point, I'm reading all this and I'm getting it, but, when I read the story of the Exodus, I see and hear these people that he's talking about grumbling and complaining on almost every page. Every few seconds, these people have a bone to pick with Moses. That's not what God chose to remember about them. Same people, but he chose to remember only their passionate love and their promise of a lifetime of commitment. Now, we can't say of God, as we sometimes say of people, that love is blind. But he certainly is selective in what he chooses to remember and to think about. It's here in the book of Jeremiah where we will encounter the oft-quoted, much-loved verse, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. It's Jeremiah 29, 11. Many of you have it memorized. It's a fantastically hopeful uh, verse. And I think um, we see an application of it here in this second chapter where God actually chooses to think a certain way about you and I. He knows you, knows you through and through. He knows the things about you that you don't want anyone else to know about that would embarrass you and maybe shame you and I if other people knew them. And yet he says, I know the thoughts I think towards you. They're thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. So when we look at the children of Israel and say, how could God say that about them? You don't have to look any farther than the mirror and say, how could God say that about me, knowing what I know? And if you're sitting there thinking, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about, I'm a great person. You're in real trouble this morning. 
you need to humble yourself. And so in verse three, Israel was holiness to the Lord, the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him will offend. Disaster will come upon them, says the Lord. Now holiness here doesn't have anything to do with their behavior. It simply means they were separated to the Lord. God called out a people to himself and they responded and say, we will be your people. They were the first fruits of his increase, meaning they would have the privilege of showing all the other nations, peoples, tribes, and tongues on the earth what it meant to be loved by God. And so they understood that God is calling us out to be his and his alone and to be an example to others of this amazing relationship. As they went about walking with the Lord, he said that he would keep them safe in that world in which they found themselves miraculously safe. If people came against them, that would offend God and he would devour them and uh, disaster would come upon them. And, And that's pretty much the story of the children of Israel when they were walking with God. Now, if you're a believer, God thinks about how much you were overwhelmed by his love when you first got saved. He remembers your good deedliness. He remembers your willingness to follow him anywhere at any time. He fondly recalls the love of your betrothal. That's what Jesus thought about the church at Ephesus that I mentioned in our introduction. They were busy doing everything in the name of the Lord, but with no real love for the Lord. But he still saw them as his beloved bride, and he spoke to them of returning to their first love, to the love of their betrothal. So Jesus is looking at the church at Ephesus. They have all these fantastic works going on. Um, Any church would love to be described the way they were described. And then Jesus says, here's what I need to say to you, though. I'm going to put it in terms of first love, the love of the betrothal because you've left that and that's what I really want. You and I, as I mentioned, we're the grumblers, we're the complainers, we're the sinners, but God chooses to remember us as his betrothed. If the idea that Jesus looks upon you this way doesn't humble you, if it doesn't break you down, if it doesn't produce in you an aptness to repent, then you're pretty far removed from the first love that he's describing. This is how God thinks of you. I know the thoughts I think towards you. I don't know if we really have, I don't know if I can fully enter into that verse without weeping. I mean, and I'm not saying that, you know, that I do weep, I'm saying that I should. God, the creator of the universe, who knows me in and out, through and through, knows my thoughts before I think them. He says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you and they're all good. I love you so much. If you only knew what I had for you, you'd never wander. Although these verses are about how God saw Judah and by application how he sees us, it's also good to remember how you felt about God when you first got saved. There was an abandonment, there was an obedience, there was a willingness, there was a submission that defied rational explanation. You were willing to, and some of you did, crazy things, just like you did when you were in love with your spouse. It's like God God asked you to do what? Quit your job? Get rid of all of those old books and records? Quit drinking? You You don't smoke pot anymore? What's the matter with you? Some of you found yourself with no friends at all, no job, no prospects, and you thought, hey, praise the Lord. I'm out in some wilderness being led by God. Isn't this great? Now when I go out to my car and the battery's dead, I'm mad. Seriously, it's like, man, you, God, bring it on, God. I'm with me, it's you and me forever. I don't care what happens. I know you'll take care of me. My battery's dead. 
How could you allow this? I'm going to be 10 minutes late. Nobody has jumper cables anymore. That kind of a thing. And so, you know, that's the way it is. But we should still live that way. You see, since we are betrothed and awaiting the bridegroom from heaven, you know, we can't look back at our relationship with the Lord and say, well, the honeymoon's over. You know, now we're into the grind of the Christian life because we haven't had our honeymoon yet. Do you realize that? We're the betrothed waiting for our bridegroom who's gonna come in the rapture to take us to heaven and then we're gonna get married and then we're gonna have a honeymoon for eternity. And so if the honeymoon is already over and you're just engaged, you're in real trouble. And so God always calling us back to this first love. But the thing to take out of this first section this morning is how he sees us. He is in mad first love with us. His love never changes. And so remember your first love because God does. Now you are prone to leave the love of your betrothal. We don't like to talk about this, but it's true. When a relationship is failing, we like to say it takes two. Well, that's not always true, by the way, even among human beings. One partner can do a lot of damage on their own. It takes two is never true with regard to a relationship with God. His love never changes. It can't fail. It only takes one. And in the 5th century B.C., the 6th century B.C., the one was the kingdom of Judah. Verse four, hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob and all the families of the house of Israel. Now about 930 B.C., Israel had split into two nations, Israel to the north and Judah, or here known as the house of Jacob, was in the south. Israel was overrun and taken captive by the Assyrians in the mid-700s B.C. Jeremiah includes them in his sermon because the things he was saying applied to all the Jews and their heart before the split of the nation. Verse five says, thus says the Lord, what injustice have your fathers found in me that they have gone far from me, have followed idols and have become idolaters? The word injustice would be better translated iniquity, meaning a wickedness or evil. The Jews acted as if God had somehow betrayed them, he had somehow mistreated them, he had somehow tricked them. It's as if he had led them out into the wilderness to become his people, promising them all these things, only to do something terrible to them. It's like you know, when Pinocchio is lured to Pleasure Island. It's like, oh, this is gonna be great, and then at the end, they're turning you into a donkey and sending you to the salt mines. And so that's, that's how the Jews were thinking about God throughout the centuries. Like, yeah, well, sure, we started off great, but it was all a lie. It was all a deception. In the Star Trek feature film, The Undiscovered Country, the Enterprise and its famous crew are commandeered by Spock's brother. He's on a search to find God, who he says has been talking to him from the other side of something they made up called the Great Barrier. And so he needs to get to God. They're on a search for God. And so they commandeer the ship and they go through the Great Barrier. I mean, there's no doubt they're gonna get through it because, you know, they're, it's Captain Kirk. And uh, they get to the other side and they're gonna go have a conversation with God. When they finally find God, God wants to know if they brought a starship. And he keeps talking to them about the starship Captain Kirk utters the classic line, what does God need with a starship? God starts shooting at them. Should be a clue that it's not really God because he's a notoriously bad shot. 
You ever notice in these movies, nobody is ever a good shot. And so he misses, and they have all this time to monologue and dialogue while God is shooting at them. But the, 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 the bottom line is, he turns out to be a cosmic criminal who deceived them into finding him so he could break out of his imprisonment on the other side of this barrier, which was his prison cell. That's how the Jews were treating God as a cosmic criminal who had somehow deceived them into following him, as if he brought them into the wilderness to become his slaves. But God says in verse six, neither did they say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, where they were slaves, by the way, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and the shadow of death, through a land that no one crossed and where no one dwelt. I brought you into a bountiful country to eat its fruit and its goodness. When you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. That's the real story. God didn't bring them out of a good situation into something terrible. He brought them out of a terrible situation into something beautiful and wonderful. While God was choosing to selectively remember the love of their betrothal, the Jews were willfully choosing to forget it. Where you set your mind, what you choose to think about and to remember, it's very, very important. God always sets his mind on his love for you. Even if he must ultimately discipline you, it is always motivated by his love for you. What is your mind set on really? What or who do you think about? And do you think that you can or cannot choose what to think about? We need to have disciplined minds. The scripture encourages us to set our affections on things above. So we can choose to love things above, not of this world, but things that are heavenly. We should think on things that are lovely and pure and holy and all such. The Bible says to bring every thought captive to Jesus Christ. And and here's the problem. A lot of times, and maybe, maybe you've been in this situation or you know somebody, you, you see somebody and their life is going fine, they're walking with the Lord, they're, you know, they seem like their marriage is okay, they're raising their kids, they're in the ministry, whatever it might be, and then from our perspective, all of a sudden, overnight, momentarily, their entire life is a disaster. They do an absolute 180 and they're going in the other direction and you think, what happened? Well, I can't say what always happens, but a lot of times what happens is for years and years and years, that person has set their mind somewhere else. They've gone through the motions. That's what Jesus is talking about, going through the motions of serving him and coming to church, preaching the word or ushering or teaching Sunday school or even ministering to people in the community. Whatever. And you're doing that, but your mind is set on something else. You've got some idea of another person that you want to have a relationship with, another place you want to be. You're pursuing something in the world and your mind is set on that. And if you're not careful, actually that can become more real to you than reality and suddenly you pass over into that realm and you start living that life and everything seems irrational to people around you. That You don't even make any sense to them anymore. You say things like, I've had people say things to me like, well no, I love the Lord with all my heart and I'm going to sin over here and do this because I, you know, I, I, that's what I'm gonna do. I'm, it's crazy. It's irrational because that person has a different reality. I'm not saying they're crazy. 
or anything like that. It's not a mental illness. It's, it, it has to do with where you have set your mind and how you have set your mind. And that is what now leads you. And so we need to be very disciplined about our minds and, and where we set them and what we think about and who we think about. God says, I'm disciplined about my mind. I could think about a lot of crazy things in your life, Gene, but I choose to think about how much you loved me when I first saved you and how grateful you were, and that's what I'm gonna continue to think about your future and your hope and encourage you to do the same. Verse eight, the priest did not say, where's the Lord? And those who handle the Lord did not know me. Uh, the law, excuse me, did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, and they walked after things that do not profit. The priests and the princes and the prophets are especially singled out as being responsible for the defection of the people. Everyone's accountable, of course, but the leaders more so. Two things come to mind with reference to the responsibilities of leadership. The first, obviously, is that we ought not to be so anxious to lead. Let God raise you up. Don't ever promote yourself. In the New Testament book of James, we're even told not many of you should presume to be teachers because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. The second thing that comes to mind, though, is that if you are called to lead and raised up to lead, then you better get on with it. Pastor Timothy was told by the Apostle Paul to stir up the gift that was in him to roll up his spiritual sleeves and get to work pastoring the church in Ephesus. And the truth is, almost all of us are called to lead someone at some time. If you're a husband, you better get with it. If you're a parent, you're a leader and you'd better get with it. If you've been a believer longer than somebody else, you're to be discipling them at least by your example, if not directly, and so you'd better get with it. And so you shouldn't want to lead. Let God take care of all that, but you're gonna be in positions of leadership and authority, and when you are, you need to get with it. Now, God was wooing his chosen nation. They would not repent. As I said earlier, Jeremiah is gonna minister to them for 40 years. 40 years. He's gonna tell them essentially the same thing over and over and over again through many trials and persecutions that they bring upon him. 40 years and they won't repent. He would therefore allow the Babylonian armies of King Nebuchadnezzar to besiege them three times and the third time they would destroy both the city of Jerusalem and its temple. Then in captivity for 70 years, their hearts would finally return to God and he would regather them and begin to rebuild. What about the church at Ephesus that we've mentioned several times? Did they remember the love of their betrothal after Jesus wooed them? One source says this, and I quote, we have no way of knowing whether they corrected their problem and later were poisoned by another false doctrine, but sadly the church at Ephesus died sometime during the second century. When Jesus wrote to the church at Ephesus, he was writing, as he said, to whoever has an ear to hear. That means it was to the church universal down through history right up to our church. And so he's writing a letter to the real church at Ephesus with a real problem, but the Holy Spirit adds to it. He says, whoever has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so all of that is applicable to all of us throughout the church age right up to our doorstep here in Hanford. 
we are prone to leave the love of our betrothal. Pastor Robert Robinson understood this even at the young age of 22 when he wrote the words to the familiar hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. In the fourth stanza we sing, Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And so Robinson had the attitude, a good attitude, that we should recognize every day, I am prone to wander. It's the most normal thing in a bad way, you know, that I can think is that as a human being with a heart, uh, you know, of flesh, stuck in this human body, though saved by grace through faith, I'm still prone to wander. There are things in the world, people in the world, ideas, philosophies, whatever they might be, that call to my heart and my heart is prone to wander. Lord, I would, can't you just chain up my heart? Guard and keep my heart. And in that prayer, there is a power as the Holy Spirit comes and uh, reminds you of these things. Now, whether Judah is being addressed by Jeremiah or the church by Jesus, God portrays our wandering from the love of the betrothal as a choice. First love isn't lost. Sometimes I'll even say it, but you're you talking about Ephesus, say, well, they lost their first love. No, they didn't. They left their first love, and there's a big difference. They left it by choice. You know, a lot of times, this is an aside, but a lot of times marriages, uh, people sit there and they'll say, I, I don't love you anymore. I'm not in the love with you anymore. You know what? That was a choice you made. You chose to leave your love for that person. You didn't lose it. Now, some people go as far, and sometimes it's true. I, I don't, you know, I'm generalizing, but a lot of times people say, well, I never really loved you. All right, I don't care about that either, quite honestly. I don't know why anybody comes and talks to me, but anyway, <laughs> if you're married, I, you, you got married, right? Yeah, did you make promises? Yeah, uh, that's all I care about. But a lot of times people, they, because of this thing I was talking about setting your mind, they've convinced themselves that they are, they've lost love for that person and they can't regain it, they can only love someone else. Because once you've lost love, wow, it's gone. I'm glad that doesn't work spiritually, aren't you? Jesus says you have a wandering heart. You're prone to wander. If you lose your love and you can't regain it, where does that leave you? You say, well, Lord, I'd love, I'd love to come back to you, but I've lost my love. I need to find somebody else now, some other idol. But no, Jesus said, no, you didn't lose anything. You left it. You chose willingly and willfully, you, it may have snuck up on you because in, in my pride, I think that I can handle this, I can think about this and also do this, but you left it. We leave it for some substitute that cannot love us with an everlasting love. God's solution to first love left is to remember. Now, remembering has at least two components to it. The first component is to identify the thing you've substituted for Jesus, to his affianced in Ephesus, he said, remember from where you have fallen. When you fall, normally it's because you tripped over something or something stumbled you. And so in this context, Jesus was saying, you can fall over something that becomes a stumbling block to your love for him. 
Love of money, love for the world, an idol that takes his place, another person, even the ministry. But the idea, Jesus says, you left your first love and you went after something else. There's no void in your life. There's someone else, there's something else that you stumbled over and that is captivating you. And then the second component is to realize the things that we've been talking about this morning, what Jesus thinks of you. Here's how the Holy Spirit describes Jesus. Jesus Christ loves the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, let's just say us, that he might present us to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that we should be holy and without blemish. Now, from a, from a pure vantage point, from a, just a thoughtful vantage point, is anything or anybody other than Jesus able to say that to you, that I am going to sanctify, cleanse, wash, present you without spot or wrinkle, holy and without blemish? What, what is it that we could go after in the world that could compete with that? Nothing. Nothing. Only Jesus can do that. Now, if you remember, really remember the love of your betrothal, I don't think you can help but repent, which means to change your mind. And so that, you know, this isn't so much a formula where Jesus in Ephesus, he says, remember, repent, and do the first works. I think the idea is that once you remember, you're also admitting that you have left your first love. And when you see the love of Jesus Christ for you and you see where you are, you can't help but be in an attitude of repentance and come back to him. Let's t- uh, close this morning on another stanza from Come Thou Fount of Many Blessings. See if this is your heart's desire. Uh, you know, these are difficult kind of poetic, romantic notions. And so you think, well, how do I know my heart is in tune with God's heart? That I'm in an attitude where I really love the Lord. One way, I think, would be to, to, to know as much as we're able to know that I really want to see the Lord today. Uh, now, don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, I, I love, I, I want more grandchildren. I want to see this happen and that happen. You know, there's, there's a lot of things that I look forward to, but there's a sense in which that what I really need to set my heart by every day is that, Lord, I would love to see you today. Whether you take me home through my death, timely or untimely, or whether you rapture the church, I wanna see you because I don't love anybody or anything more than I love you. And that, that's a hard one, I understand. But here's how uh, Robert Robinson put it in Come Thou Fount of Many Blessings, and we'll close on this. He said, oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face clothed then in blood-washed linen how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransomed soul away. Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. Father, we thank you so much for the prospect of being with you the moment we are gone from this earth.